while I was putting this sermon together, I had two different groups of people in my mind. First, I had the group of pastors and their wives that I went to visit in India in January. So I went to a conference there to, to preach to these preachers and their wives. And during the conference, during the, in between the talks, I would spend as much time as I could through a translator listening to the stories of these men and women. And really the story was the same. They had come out of some kind of Hindu background, which was very hostile to Christianity. And, and once the, the, the Lord really grabbed hold of their hearts and they decided to serve and follow him... They were kicked out of their families, sometimes kicked out of their towns, sometimes physically abused, in every case, emotionally abused. But they had a a love for the Lord, and they were all going back to towns after the conference was over that was hostile to their faith. And so I have these people in my mind because I was thinking what do you do when you accept God's call on your life and immediately your, hard, your life gets harder? And then for these people, probably permanently. So you, you, you get to know this great God and he's awesome and he saved you and, and you're so excited about it, but immediately your life gets harder because of it. He leads you into a dark place. And for many of these people, it's a permanent place. So how do you preach to those preachers? What do you say to people in that kind of situation? Second group of people I have in mind is you. Because I always have you in mind when I'm thinking about the sermons. And you know you don't have to go to India to experience some kind of darkness or suffering. So what do you do when following Jesus take some kind of U-turn, and you end up in a cave. Some kind of dark emotional cave, some kind of circumstantial cave. Something's caved in. Something that you thought was going to happen isn't going to turn out like you thought. And so what, what do you say to people who live in a cave? Well, the way I would begin to answer that, these kinds of questions, is I would look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, 22, 23. I turn there and try to look at the life of David because David, as you remember in chapter 16, he was told sort of in this secret ceremony, David, you're going to be king. In chapter 16, this young boy at 16 dreams about becoming the king. And in chapter 21, 22, he's in a cave. He goes from dreams of the kingdom to the cave. He goes from dreams to despair. And so what do you say to people that go from those kinds of dreams to despair, who who dream of being a king but end up living in a cave? On the front of your bulletin, a, a Christian singer, Sarah Groves, has written a song about uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, and it starts out, speak to me, speak to me in my cave of Abdullam. This is the cave that David is in. Reach to me, reach to me. No, it, it feels like nobody's caring for my soul. And I love this line. I thought I saw your kingdom, but it's not going to happen like I thought it was going to happen. You ever been there? 
you, you, you saw something, you felt like even you had a vision from the Lord and you were kind of chasing that down. And of course, that vision terminated in something bright, something glorious, something great. But somehow you, you've fallen off or some, you've ended up in a cave in some form. And what you thought was going to happen is now not going to happen. When your soul gets pulled into this cave, how do you press on? So the first thing I want to do this morning is just kind of understand where David is and then offer three ways that David helps us to to press on. First of all, uh, as I said, chapter 16, David has this meeting with uh, Samuel. Remember, he, Samuel goes to Bethlehem to find Jesse, and Jesse has all these sons, eight sons. And seven of the sons are invited to this great uh, ceremony, but David's left out. He's the runt. He's the one who's really of no account. He's doing kind of slave work. He's a shepherd. And uh, in a very unusual way, he's actually crowned the king. He's anointed. And just after his anointing, he gets to go back and shepherd some more. So just think, he's 16. What if you were 16? Somebody you trusted, a prophet comes and says, you're going to be king one day. And then you're leading sheep around the hillside of Judea. What would you dream about? I mean, what would come in your mind? For me, it would be about the palace and the power. Where am I going to live? What kind of power am I going to have? I wonder what he's thinking about in a cave. I'm pretty sure a cave wasn't his idea of a palace. I'm sure being alone in a cave wasn't his idea of power. I'm sure what he had dreamed, dreamt of isn't actually happening as he moves forward. Chapter 17 through 20, David grows in his leadership uh, through many battles. David and Goliath, the most famous of those. But there's a problem as he grows in his leadership in, in order to be fashioned into a king, there's already a king. Saul, and guess what? Saul doesn't want David to become the king. So Saul gets very frustrated and angry at David. And in chapter 21 to the rest of the book, Saul chases down David. And David spends the rest of the book, which is about 10 years of his life, living out of caves. A decade. Just think about this. A decade living in a cave. And you thought you were going to be king. And you have all these harrowing experiences of almost losing your life because the current king is trying to to put you to death. And you see in chapter 22, David departed from there. He's uh, he's coming out of uh, listening to... um, to Jonathan and saying, Jonathan, Saul's son is saying, you need to run away. So David departs and he escapes to the cave of Abdullam, chapter 22, verse 1. When his brothers and all of his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him and everyone, now here's his little army. Here's his little first army. All right. Who would you want in the, like the first little army ranger? Who would you, who would you want as your like seal team six around you? Here's who he gets. Everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter of soul gathered to him. Oh, wow. Welcome. I mean, I don't know if you know the Rudolph story, the Island of Misfit Toys. You know this story? 
It's all these toys that don't quite fit, and it feels like that's what David got. He got the train with square wheels, you know. He got the owl that likes to swim. He likes all those, he gets all these kinds of things. And he's like, wow, what a kingdom. I'm in a cave and I get all the misfits as my first little band. Again, I'm pretty sure this is what, what David had in his mind. What David thought was going to happen is not going to happen. And so how do you press on? You're in that cave. How do you move forward? And David gives us three ways to help us move forward. People, providence, and praise. People, providence, and praise. This is how anyone stuck in a cave can can stay or move forward. I mean, remember, David has to stay in a cave for 10 years. So how do you stay faithful if you live in a cave for 10 years? You, You have to have people. You have to trust in God's providence And you have to learn how to praise in those times. So let's look at those as we go through. First of all, people. David and you and I, we can't survive on our own. We're not built to survive on our own. We're we're, we're born into a family. We're born into communities. We're born into groups of people. And so he requires a a constant supply of people to help him move forward. I think especially this time of the year as you head towards a college graduation or a high school graduation, you know, the, the graduate, if they have any sense at all, stands up and says, I want to thank my mom and dad and all those people who have helped me get here. Because it's never just a one person or two person. You didn't do it on your own. You had all kinds of people to help you get through this, this uh, stage of life. And so David needs people, and he shows us three different people that he runs into. First of all, he gets real help from the priests. Chapter 21. David's on the run. He comes to the priest. The guy's name is Ahimelech. And Ahimelech actually serves Saul. And so David comes and is trying to, trying to I think, preserve Ahimelech from doing something that might harm him. But it's a little sketchy, and Ahimelech knows it, and he says, David, I still want to help you out. I think you're going to be the king. And so Ahimelech takes a big risk in helping David. And the way he helps David is he gives him food. And he actually gives him the sword of Goliath. Remember when he defeated Goliath? He did it with a sling and a stone. And when Goliath was down, he took Goliath's sword and chopped off his head. So David's all by himself at this point. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't have any weapons. So this priest, Ahimelech, he takes a risk and he provides for physical needs. Pretty simple. Just somebody's in a cave. It's hard for them to go on, and they just need some physical help. They just need somebody to come in and do something for them physically, and just them providing a service or giving them food, that just helps them move forward into the next day. That's that's what Ahimelech does. Chapter 23, Ahimelech has a son named Abathar, and David comes to Abathar, and they end up being long-life friends. And this, at this point, David isn't looking for food. He's looking for direction. So he comes to uh, the first priest and said, I just need some physical help. And then he comes to the next priest and said, I need some guidance. I need some direction. I got a food. I got sword. But I'm not sure what to do next. And Abathar helps him know what the Lord wants David to do. And so my point just in bringing this up is that My hope is that when you come to church, 
Because now we are a kingdom of priests. It's not me. It's us. That when somebody comes and they're in need physically, they're going to find that need met somehow here, Christ community. Might be just a simple thing, but it's hard to live in a cave when your cave is falling apart and somebody comes in and just tries to help you physically. Or it might be somebody is in a cave and I just need guidance. I need somebody to tell me how to, what's, what's my next step. And you have people in the church that God has designed for you to use. So my prayer is that we're that kind of place. And if you're in a cave that you ask for help. But that if you know somebody's in a cave, you offer help. Might be physical help, might be spiritual help, might be emotional help, but we're helping one another through difficult times. So the priests, he has a friend, and we talked about this. We did a whole sermon last week on Jonathan. And because it's my favorite, I want to remind us about Jonathan. Chapter 23, this is such a great passage. David again, he's in this cave. Saul is pursuing him, verse 15. David saw that Saul Saul had come out to seek his life, so he flees out into the wilderness. So David's in the wilderness, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. And Jonathan, Saul's son, comes. He, He takes the initiative, and notice in verse 16, to strengthen his hand. So he has, a, he has a BFF. He has somebody who can come alongside and, and he can sense, hey, I've got a buddy who's going down and I don't want my friend to go down. So what am I going to do? I'm going to strengthen his hand. I'm gonna, I can see his hand is slipping out of the hand of God and I'm going I'm to take my hand and push his hand back into the hand of God. That's, that's what a great friend does for you. They come alongside, they have some sense of where you are emotionally, and they come in to strengthen your hand, and it helps you press on. So I hope you have a friend like this. I hope you are a friend like this. And finally, I really want you to love this part. So chapter 22, it's a, it's a verse you can read right across and not even think about it. David departed, chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped, from, escaped to the cave. And I want you just to underline this because this is really, if you could just somehow see it, it's so beautiful. And his brothers and his fathers heard of it and they went down to him. How many brothers does David have? Seven. What's it like when you're in a cave and eight men walk in who are for you? It's great. When when you say, here's my family. Look, David's had problems with his family. We already know this. So it's it's not the perfect family. One of his brothers kind of shouted him down. But now they see, they see their brothers in need. So all of these eight men, imagine you're in a cave and you hear sort of a, a small little troop walk in and you turn on your light and who is it? It's your family. And they come in and I just can't even imagine the, the wind that that gives into the soul of David that his family would take the effort and at great risk to themselves come and find their brother and say we're going to stay here with you until you get out of the cave I hope you have a family like that 
I hope that if you're in a family, especially if you're a mom and dad, you're making a family like that. But if you don't have that kind of family, my hope is that the church family is that for you. A lot of people don't have families like that. But that when you're in a cave, there would be a group of people around you in your church family who would, who would all rush in in some way to say, I'm here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with you in this cave. This is a beautiful little moment, and it really is pictured perfectly in this little video that I'm going to show you. A guy named Derek Redmond, 1992. One second. 1992. He is an Olympic runner, and he's from Great Britain. And he's one of the favorites for the 400 meter. That, that's the one time around the track. And he's in the semifinals. It's actually in London. So he's got all the hometown crowd. And halfway through the race, he pulls a hamstring. And he's out. And you'll see his dad in this video come to his rescue. I mean, I've seen that a hundred times and I cry every time I see it. And one of the hardest moments for me in the video is actually watching the other guys finish the race. You notice that they showed all the other guys finish and that was his dream. He thought he was going to be at the finish line. And he doesn't want to say, I didn't finish, but he can't finish on his own. So his dad, don't you love his dad? You can kiss his dad, don't you? Comes in and, and the guy tries to help. Let's get him help. He's like, get out of here. We're going we're gonna to finish the race. And dads, do you understand the power you have for your children to say you can help them finish a race? So powerful. So meaningful. And you read by this little verse, you don't even see it. This might be the most important point in this whole passage is how do you finish? How do you get across the finish line? Well, you need, you know, you need the church. You need, you need a friend. But my hope is you have somebody in your family who can say, I see. I, I'm going to take great risk. I'm going to barge through something to get to you and help you 
finish the race. So you need people. Secondly, you've got to trust in God's providence when you're in a cave. We talked about providence a couple weeks ago, or actually it was a couple months ago, and one of the definitions I gave was this, the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way of the Lord. God's just orchestrating things, and it's mysterious, and sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't, then it's strange, it's unguessable in some ways. But I actually preferred the definition that Corey Ten Boom gave Corey Tim Boom, who spent three months in solitary confinement and ten months in a German concentration camp, talk about a cave. Here's what she says about her life. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors, but he weaveth steadily. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly when my life is over. Will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why? See, he, he's the weaver. Your life goes back and forth. He chooses the colors. And you don't know why. Why, why is he choosing the black ribbon right now? I'm tired of the black ribbon. Let's do something else. And you don't know until he unrolls the canvas why he chose that way. There's two great little moments of God's providence that that I must point out to you. Chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. David, his his family and these these misfits have come to to this cave. And he says, I've got to go to Moab. Now, Moab is across the river. It's a different country. And the Moabites are enemies to the Israelites. And I've got to go over there and I've got to talk to the king In verse 3, I've got to say, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. See, I can't have my aging parents run around in the desert and live in a cave with me for 10 years. So I've got to drop them off in some place. But why would David choose Moab? Why would David choose Moab? These are, these are people who are hostile to the Israelites. They know something about David. His reputation's gone on before him. And now David, this guy who's going to be the king, who's eventually going to be the one who's fighting against the Moabites, why is David choosing Moab? Well, 200 years prior to this moment, a young woman, a Moabite woman, her husband dies. She's in total poverty. I mean, when when you're a widow in that time, you're dependent on your family, and her family deserts her. She's in total poverty. The only person she's really connected to is another woman who's lost her husband. And together, they move from Moab back to Israel, hoping to find some kind of help. I mean, she's so desperate, this Moabite woman is saying, I'll go to Israel if I can just find some food, if I can find some kind of help. She ends up meeting a guy named Boaz and marries Boaz. And they have a son who has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. Now it's 200 years later, David's desperate. Why does he go to Moab? 
His great-grandmother is a Moabite. And they know this. And you're bringing your mom and dad, who are part Moabite here, we'll take care of them. Now see, her name is Ruth. You think she ever thought that could happen? No, no way. This young woman who's lost, lost a husband, lives in poverty, has to go to another country to find some kind of hope and help. And sh thankfully she does. But you see, she spent a lot of her days in a cave. And the cave drove her to Israel so that 200 years later, God providentially could bring her great-grandson back to Moab and get help. That's called God's providence. That's not good luck. That's how God weaves things together in ways that, see, Ruth could never see. She never even got to see in her life. Such a great moment. Chapter 23 you're supposed to feel the intensity of this battle. Saul is closing in on David. In chapter 23, verse 24, Now David and his men were in the wilderness, and Saul, 25, and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness. And when Saul heard, he pursued after David. And if, you, if you're in a mission impossible, this is the most intense moment of the movie. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, verse 26. And David, he runs around to the other side of the mountain. This noose is closing. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And just then, just as Saul and his men were closing in, verse 26... Just as David and his men were about to be captured, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry, come, for the Philistines are fighting against you. David, in the beginning of this chapter, guess who he was fighting against? The Philistines. The people that he considered as enemies in the beginning of the chapter end up rescuing him at the end of the chapter. See, God can even use your enemies to bring about a great victory. God's providence. You, 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 you look at your enemies and say, oh, they're against me. I'm always fighting against them. I can't make any headway. I can't get anywhere. God can actually use those people to save you at another time. You don't know. See, you don't know because you don't know how God is weaving things together. The death of a husband, the desperation of a widow, even your enemies can accomplish God's will. But see, you might not see it in your lifetime. This is what you've got to have in your mind. Ruth never saw David in her lifetime. So you've got to trust that when you're in a cave, God somehow is working things together and that he might be using this moment not for you, but for a great-grandson. God's providence. You've got to trust in God's providence in order to press on. Third and finally, you've got to learn how to praise. How do you press on when your dreams get dis disrupted? You worship. You might say, you don't sail through dark times, you sing through dark times. Most of us know that David wrote half of the psalm book. So 150 psalms, he wrote 73, I think. Seven of them are about this moment. So 10% of his psalms 
are about these three chapters. And you can see it. Just now let's turn to chapter uh, Psalm 57. You can just see in the heading of the verse, this is when I fled from Saul and in a cave. And you could go to 52, 54, 56, and 59, and they all tell you about, hey, this is when David was in a cave. This is when David, Saul was seeking his life, every one of them. And just let's close with this. Let's just think about this psalm. He's singing this in a cave. He's writing it down. And he's saying, hey, if I ever get out of this, put it to this tune because I think it's going to go to this tune. Verse 1, be merciful to me. The very first thing David does is he cries out, he sings humbly for mercy. This is where you see David as a man after God's own heart. See, this is, I th- I'm afraid this is what my first line would have been. I'm supposed to be king. Anybody might have made that their first line? Do you, see, do you see whose heart you're after when you say that? God, it's, it's, you know what? It's about me, right, buddy? But you see the difference? I mean, this is a huge difference in how you pray. David sees himself primarily as a sinner in need of mercy, no matter where he is. So he doesn't come in some kind of privileged way. He doesn't come looking down on God. He doesn't come making any kind of demands. He comes asking for mercy. So he sings humbly. When you, when you sing in this cave, you, wanna, you want to have mercy. You want to you start out by singing humbly. Verse 2, he sings hopefully. I cry to God the Most High. I'm not just crying to God. I'm crying to the God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. This word fulfills, it means to complete or he finishes. He's going to complete his purposes. He's going to finish his purpose. So this is so important in times of distress is this isn't just a pep talk. This is like a truth talk. David is pushing truth into his soul. He's crying out and saying, God, I know you have a purpose for, for me. And even though I don't like this color you're choosing right now to weave through my life, it's, it's going to fulfill your purpose. Even though I'm in a cave, I know the cave isn't a detour. Do you know that? I was supposed to be going this way, and I'm stuck over here in this detour. And God's going, no, this is the way, Paul. You think it's a detour, but it's not a detour. I wonder how Paul the apostle thought. I'm on my way to Spain. I'm on my way to Europe. I'm stuck in this Roman jail. Hey, this is the plan, Paul. This is plan A. You had a different vision, but God has this vision because I need you to write letters so a guy named Paul Phillips 2,000 years later can stand up and tell people about Jesus in Wilmington, North Carolina. You think Paul's complaining in heaven? Dang, I should have gotten to Europe. No! He sees the black thread, and when he turns over, it's glowing. It's the best part, maybe. But while he's living through it, it's the dark thread. You, do you see that? Could be the darkest thread. But when he turns over the canvas, it says something or it shows something that is astounding, beautiful. 
So he, he's singing in this distress, and he's reminding himself of these truths that God has a plan. Paul writing from a cell, prison cell, being confident of this, First Philippians 1, 6, most of us know this, he who began a good work in you is faithful to finish it, to complete it. He's going to bring it to a completion. So if you're living in a cave, it's not a detour. God hasn't forgotten about you. In fact, th this cave is part of his fulfilling. Finally, verse 8 and 9. It's a whole sermon. I'm just trying to get it into this sermon. I love this. I, I love every part about this sermon so far. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will wake the dawn. This is David saying, turn up the music. Turn it up. Wake up, drum set. Wake up, piano. Because I'm going to start singing about the greatness of God while I'm in this cave. I'm not going to wait until I get out of the cave and say how great he is. I'm going to be in the cave and I'm going to sing about the greatness of God. So wake up, instruments. Probably there's a few of you like me, you, you, like, you get stuck on a song. And your spouse or your friends don't want to hear it anymore. So you get in your car, you put on the headphones, and you turn it up like a little too loud, like, like might hurt your ears loud. But somehow that song, it, it gets down in your soul. Somehow that loudness gets all the way down. And that's what David's doing. He's shouting this out, but he's not just shouting it out for himself. He's, he's sending a message Wake up, instruments. I'm going to give thanks to the Lord. Where? Verse 9. Among the people in this cave. I'm going to shout, not just so to remind my soul, but to every discouraged soul in this cave. I've got other people in the cave with me. And I want them to know that I'm not depending on me. And I'm not depending on them. We all need to be depending on God to get out of this cave. You see how powerful that is so powerful to david's soul but as he starts singing the other people are encouraged to say david we, that's right david's not going to save us we're not going to save us we trust in a god who's going to save us that's how you start getting out of a cave that's how you stay for 10 years in a cave faithfully you have people around you it's not just one person, all kinds of people. You, you trust in God's providence. You say, I know I, I don't see this right now, but I, if I could flip it over, I trust in God's providence. Finally, I have, I have praise. I can sing praise to the Lord. So we turn our attention to Easter week this week uh, before we encounter the empty tomb. On Sunday, you have to encounter the cross. On Thursday, Friday. And this is a dark cave for Jesus' soul. Jesus is hanging on a cross. Jesus, the son of David, is hanging on the cross. What's going through his mind? Psalm 22, the song of David. He starts singing a song, but because he doesn't have enough breath, 
He just sings the opening line to tell everybody, I'm singing this whole song, but I only have, a, I only have like eight seconds of breath, so I'm just going to scream out the first line so you know that as I'm hanging up here, this is the song I'm singing in my head that I don't have enough breath to sing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? But it's not just one line. It's the first line of a whole psalm. That's what you're supposed to see. We're not supposed to just say, he's just saying that one thing. He's saying that one thing in the context of a song. I'm telling you, I'm singing a whole song here. I'm not just giving you one line. Let me read a few more lines. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you. You delivered them. They cried out to you. They were saved. In you, they trusted, and they weren't disappointed. Do you see Jesus is singing that song? There will be descendants who serve God. There will be a generation that will be told about the Lord. They'll tell people yet unborn about God's righteousness that God has finished it. That's the very end of the song. And what's the last thing that Jesus says on the cross? It is finished. See, he's singing that whole song. So you should go back and read Psalm 22. No, that's the whole song. So I don't know, you might not be in a cave today. But you probably know somebody who is. And you can use this to be a person who helps them. But when you get in a cave, you're going to need these things to help you stay. Even if it's for 10 years, be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, um, I don't know. I don't know sometimes what goes on in my own soul, so I don't know what's going on in the soul of my friends. But especially pray for those who feel like they're in a dark space. That, that, that you would encourage them today through David's life. Ten years living in caves and needing people, needing praise, needing to trust your providence. Would, would this be a part of you helping them move into the next day, into the next week? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.